When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's the amazing Rico Bronia podcast with your host, Evan Roberts. Well, we waited 72 hours for baseball, and boy, did we get baseball. A traditional doubleheader at City Field between the New York Mets and the Atlanta Braves after we got basically screwed on Friday with five innings of baseball. No baseball on Saturday, no baseball on Sunday. And we do get the doubleheader on Monday. Before we discuss the two games, I was perturbed by the pitching plan. And I say that long before the Mets lost game one, nine, eight, because logic would have said, all right, you could pitch Kodai on regular rest. We know the Mets are afraid of that. Or you could just stick with what the Mets had initially planned, which was Tyler McGill and Jose Budo. The Mets decide to option Budo down to the minor leagues. Denny Reyes gets the opening, if you want to call it that, because it wasn't really a start. And we were going to see kind of a cavalcade of Met relievers try to go up against Spencer Strider. It felt like a game that the Mets were essentially punting. And I hate to use that phrase. I don't like the idea of punting a game. Obviously, the lineup was put together in which you're trying to win. But when you're throwing out Denny Reyes, and then you're basically going to throw the entire bullpen at you. John Curtis, who just recently got called up. Steven Nagosik, who was just activated from the injured list. It feels like it's not a real effort to win a game. And for that to be the opener of the doubleheader, and I'm going down thinking, boy, if I get a split, I'll be thrilled, considering what you're throwing out there right out the gate. So it's a little disappointing, a little kind of weird that that would be their game plan. I know Budo was shaking his last start, but I probably would have just handed him the baseball. The, the Senga thing, and we'll talk more about it when we break down the Met rotation going to Detroit, Detroit and beyond, but they are, he's not hurt because I think if he was hurt, he wouldn't be scheduled to start Friday necessarily, which is what they have penciled him in for, but they're clearly afraid of him pitching on regular rest for now. And they can hide that for now, and they certainly hit it on this homestand in some two obvious ways, the beginning of the stand against Washington, the way they pushed him back, and then obviously what they did on Monday. So the Mets go into this doubleheader with Atlanta. It's Spencer Strider against Denny Reyes. I'm sitting there in my office. Then I go to Craig's office, and I say to Craig, who didn't even know the Mets were playing, I have to remind him. I said, this is the loss. Like, I hate to be super negative. And I really, I'm not, as much as maybe I sound that way. But I'm not necessarily negative before every single game. But I sit down watching Danny Reyes, who's pitched well out of the bullpen. Don't get me wrong. Facing Spencer Strider. And I turn to him when Acuna leads off with a base hit. And I say to him, we're dead. Like, this game's over. And then the second guy gets on pace. Matt Olson gets a hit. And there's two on and nobody out. And I say it again to Craig. I said, we're dead. And then Austin Riley pops up. And I look at him and I say, we're still dead. And then Sean Murphy, what a great move that was. Like, like the Braves didn't need another good catcher. 
Sean Murphy hits a three-run home run. And I look at Craig and I say, you see, we're dead. We're screwed right out the gate. It's 3 nothing Atlanta. And then we proceeded to watch a baseball game that for two and a half hours, however long it was, and I spent a lot of it on the air, so I'm not scoring it. I'm not intent on every pitch the way I like to be. But then the Mets went out and teased us for the next two and a half hours. Because think about the bottom of the first inning against Strider, who the Mets have actually had some pretty good success with. Usually what they do with him is they make him throw a lot of pitches. They make some contact. Spencer cries that we're lucky. That's usually how it goes. And the Mets knock him out of the game in the fifth inning. They get the first two guys on base. They actually got the first three guys on base. Brandon Nimmo leads off with a triple. He's driven in, and boom, it's three to one with first and third nobody out. It's all set up for the Mets to literally erase that three nothing deficit. And then we get teased. Pete strikes out. McNeil hits an infield pop up after a walk to Vogelback. Brett Beatty strikes out. But really, the story of this first game was how every time I thought, and I'm, I'm sure I wasn't alone that this game was over before it started. The Mets kept fighting back. You know, you go to that second inning when Reyes is chased, and I I thought Buck made a mistake bringing him out for the second inning, but I think what Buck's thinking at this point is, despite how shaky he was in the first, I got to get innings, right? I got to find a way to get 27 outs, and I have a second game coming up, and who knows how long McGill's going to go. And even though they're going to get a fresh arm in the second game, I think he's just trying to stretch another inning out of Reyes, but that was a huge mistake. I mean, that was, that was, let's be honest, that was freaking stupid. And he promptly gives up a home run. I think it was to Kevin Pillar. And then John Curtis comes into the game and Ronald Acuna hit a home run. If you didn't see this, because I, I, I'm pretty sure that a lot of people listening may have not been able to sit there and watch six hours of baseball on a, on a work day or a school day. But Ronald Acuna hit, I think, the furthest home run I've ever seen at City Field. He hit it into the third deck in left center. And I started to rack my brain about other bombs hit at City. Aaron Judge had one for the Yankees in the Subway Series. Mark Reynolds had one back in the day with the Diamondbacks. I know Yoannis had a bunch of bombs. I can't count the home run derby ones, to be honest with you. Uh, Troy Tulowitzki, I think, hit one. But, boy, that Acuna bomb was destroyed. And, again, the game's over, right? It's 6-1. to one. We're dead. And then Pete Alonzo hits a three-run home run. And it's six to four. And then it's six to five. And then, ah, crap. The Braves break it open again. This time it's Jeff Brigham giving up a three-run home run. Who hit this one? Was it Murphy or Pilar? I forget. Somebody hit the home run. I don't remember. This is what happens when I don't have the scorecard in front of me. I'm just trying to remember off the top of my head. Uh, It was, um, now I'm looking it up. It was was Murphy Murphy again. That's right. Yeah. It was Murphy. That son of a bitch, man. That guy. What a pain, Pete. How much? Where were you? Weren't even at work today. Did you take off work just to watch the double header, Pete? I took off work to clean my basement that flooded uh, on Sunday night. So it's oh, been a rough God. 24 plus hours. It's beautiful. But I did watch the game and I did watch those home runs and it was miserable. By the way, I looked. It's not the furthest home run by Acuna Jr., by the way. You have, do you know the furthest home runs in City Field era? <sighs> well, the ones I named jumped out at me, but they jumped out at me because they were right-hand hitters, so I'm thinking of that part of the ballpark. But if I included left-hand hitters, I think Juan Soto may have put one on the bridge a couple of times. Mm-hmm. So 
Uh, I would stick with the guys I mentioned, Judge, Reynolds, Tulowitzki, Juan Soto would be. Oh, Giancarlo, I think hit a couple too. Those would be the names that jump out at me. But the furthest one is a former Met, Michael Conforto, 469. Really? Yes. Really? But Stanton has four, 468. Acuna's was 458, so it was close. But Boy, that's... You know what's funny about that? How do they really know for sure? We're separated by 10 feet now. I have you know? no idea. Well, where it lands, the, the trajectory. <laughs> so Conforto's number one and Stanton is number two? Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. I'm surprised. It, it, it just shows the way we think sometimes, that when you think of the longest home runs at City Field, think about the names I just mentioned. They're, none of them were Mets. Like, I literally just went, racked my brain for guys who hit it against us. And even when I mentioned Cespedes, I'm thinking about the home run derby. So right. may, maybe sometimes as fans, we like to ignore the fact that our own guys occasionally hit long home well, runs. Because the ones that are more memorable are memorable are like the ones like the Mark Reynolds home runs, where you had yeah. like five home runs of four games. We're like, oh, I wish we could do that. Yeah, no, you're right. You're right. I think Pete will get up there eventually, too. He's hit some bombs. Uh, but this game really stunk. You know, A.J. Minter comes in the ninth inning. I'm hoping he's going to have another implosion like he did against the Marlins last week. And it was good to see Escobar hit the pinch hit home run just because I, I think Eduardo Escobar, and we talked about this last time on the Rico, the Tommy Pham versus Eduardo Escobar question when lefties are on the mound. I think I have more faith in Escobar to get hot and kind of take that role as the right-handed DH, obviously before Vientos gets called up, which should happen. So Escobar pinch hits for Vogel back, two outs, nobody on in the ninth inning. They're down by two, and he hits one out. So he showed a little bit of a pulse. Tommy Pham continues to not show a pulse. Pham pinch hit in this game for Luis Guillorme when Buck started to empty his bench. He pinch hit Canna for Nito, and he failed. But before that, he went Pham for Guillorme, and boy, his slumps continues. It does. Uh, the Mets are going to face a bunch of lefties coming up in Detroit. The streak continues where they always face lefties. I, I want to see Escobar over Tommy Pham. That's where I'm at. You know, obviously, I think we'd all want to see Vientos with the way he's hitting. But if you're giving me the choice right now, based on who's on the roster, Eduardo Escobar is starting to show a little bit of a pulse, and Tommy Pham's got none of it. So the Mets lose the opener 9-8. It was frustrating. But the second game was the game you kind of targeted and said, all right, this is the game you got to win. And I've mentioned this before about these important games in a 162 that are a little bit more important than others. I looked at the finale of this doubleheader as one of those. Because even though it would have felt like a weird sweep to get swept by Atlanta five innings Friday and then a doubleheader Monday, that's a very disjointed sweep. It still would be a sweep. And if you go back to their struggles against Atlanta at the end of the regular season, it would just further extend their losing streak against the Braves. Uh, not as much the standings thing, because the Mets are four games out going into the second game. So five games out versus three games out. Yeah, I'd rather be three out, but it wasn't even as much that. Because I do think it's early enough in the season. There's plenty of more games between the two teams where I'm not getting crazy about how many games back they are. I think this was more just for baseball mental health. You want to beat the Braves. As simple as that. Friday felt like such a cheap loss. The game one felt like a, we're handing it to you kind of loss based on their pitching situation or really their pitching decisions, I should say. So I looked at McGill versus Morton 
where the pitching matchup is a little bit more even, certainly more than Freed versus Peterson and Spencer Strider versus the bullpen. And I circled that one as it started late in our show, Craig and I. And I said it to him off air. I said, this is the one I want now. Now the Mets have to go out and win a baseball game. Now let's see him go out and at least salvage what's been a very disappointing homestand. Because let's not forget, as disjointed as it is because of the rainouts on Saturday and Sunday, the Mets lost two out of three to the Nationals. So when you combine losing two out of three to the Nationals, the final two games against San Francisco on the West Coast trip, and now the first two games against the Braves, let's do all the math. That's six out of seven. That's a bad stretch of baseball. So I wanted this game. And to Tyler McGill's credit, it, it won't look good because of what happened in the sixth inning. But Tyler was really, really good in this game. Really good in this game. Daniel Vogel backstrokes that RBI double, gives him an early one nothing lead. They tack on another run in the fifth inning because, well, you know why? Because I forget who scored. Did Brett, When did Brett Beatty hit the home run against the lefty? Oh, that was game one. Okay. That was game one. That was a smash. Oh, my God. That was great. I, I don't want to forget that. For some reason, my brain started to tell me they scored the second run in the doubleheader on a Brett Beatty home run, but it wasn't. So I apologize for that. Uh, he did have a double in the game, though. So that's kind of cool. But they go up 2 nothing, and it sets up that sixth inning, which is a second-guesser's paradise. Tyler McGill in the sixth inning after he pitches five scoreless innings, and here come the Atlanta Braves starting to put something together. So let's walk through this fifth inning and decide together, sixth inning, and decide together how Buck handled this thing. Chadwick Trump doubles to lead off. He gets Pilar to fly out. He walks Matt Olson. He gets Austin Riley out. And now Sean Murphy walks. So we're set up with bases loaded, two outs, sixth inning, the Mets are up 2-0. The batter is Eddie Rosario, and he's got Drew Smith in the bullpen. All right, so McGill is starting to show a little shakiness right now. He's walked two of his three guys. His pitch count at this point is 84 pitches. So it's not a pitch count issue. It's really a, do you trust him to get Rosario out? Now, the Mets are in this spot where they don't have a lefty in their bullpen. Oh, wait, no, they do. They called up Zach Muckenhern. The Mets are not going to Zach Muckenhern with the bases loaded and two outs to make his debut. Just doesn't feel like the right spot. So your choice is, do you stick with Tyler McGill or do you go to Drew Smith? Even though it didn't work because Smith um, uh, McGill fell behind 2-0 and and then Rosario rips the double, I kind of agreed with Buck. I was 50-50 on it, but my gut, and again, I'm you know, doing a radio show as this is happening, so I don't have like... I really don't even have the information I would normally have if I'm watching the game. Like, because I know the bases are loaded. I'm not really sure what his pitch count is. Oh, wait, SNY has it up there. It's it's like different, I think. I always say this. It's so different when you're watching the game while on the air. But I just want to be honest about how I felt. I wanted to keep him in the game. Because I also like the idea of challenging him and saying to Tyler and McGill, you know what? You haven't given up a run yet. This is your last batter no matter what. Go get this guy out. Once he falls behind Rosario, and you're obviously not making a pitching pitching change in the middle of an at-bat when the count is 2-0, but I knew we were screwed. Behind 2-0, it just 
He wasn't going to walk him. He'd walk two guys in the inning. He was going to throw him a fat pitch right down the middle. And by God, Eddie Rosario didn't miss it. We did get the tease of the relay throw, getting the runner at the plate. And this was, you know, what's funny, actually, Pete, now that I'm remembering this, we signed off. The show is over as McGill is staying the game to face Rosario. This is all right at about 615 when our show is over. So I put the game on my phone and I now start to walk to my office to kind of clean up and get ready to go. And I'm walking to my office as this pitch is being thrown. Now it comes back to me and Rosario hits the crap out of it. The three run score to give him the lead, but you can see on the replay. Oh man, it, it, over to that. They called him at the plate. So it's actually a two run double final out at the plate inning is over, but you could kind of tell that the foot was down on the replay. And so all three runs score. Braves take the three to two lead. Obviously, McGill's taken out. I, honestly, I didn't have an issue with Bucks sticking with him. I, I like the challenge of it. You know, it's kind of the, the opposite of what happened in the Yankee game. For anyone who didn't watch the Yankee game on Monday night, where Domingo Herman's pitching a great game, he gives up a one-out single in the ninth, and Boone can't wait to take him out. And by the way, Herman's pitch count, very similar to where McGill's pitch count was. And Boone couldn't wait to take him out. And obviously the game, I don't want to get into too many details on the Yankee game. This is Rico Bronia. This is not Alvaro Espinosa. Though he was a Met too, Alvaro Espinosa. <laughs> this isn't Mike Gallego. I'm sorry. But I liked that Buck challenged McGill. And if I was Boone, I would have challenged Herman. There are certain times where I think you let your starter stay in just a little bit longer, especially this time of year, just to see what they got. Well, I, listen, we, we're hitting May now. So, like, we desperately need, if a pitch count is somewhat serviceable, we need the pitch to go longer, especially if McGill is going to be uh, part of this rotation for the long run. We need to f see how long he can go into a game and how deep he can, if he can get himself out of situations. Like, I'm sorry, you can't go five innings every day, but every game, like, okay, this is successful. It's, it's, right. not, it's not possible anymore. You're right. There's a stat. We have it in our fantasy league. We as Met fans don't know anything about it because we don't get it. It's called a quality start. And while it's a flawed stat, you have to pitch six innings to get a quality start. And the Mets don't have starters that ever go six. So maybe Buck was sitting there thinking, you know what? Can this guy get me a quality start? Unfortunately, it didn't work. But then we get to what I think was my favorite part of the game. All of our favorite parts of the game. Bottom of the sixth inning, we're now trailing by a run. Game is not over. I mean, certainly against Charlie Morton in this brave bullpen. Daniel Vogelback and Mark Hanna draw back-to-back -back walks against Morton. We get his ass out the game. Michael Tonkin comes in, and Brett Beatty flies out. Right, right out the gate. Now there's two outs, two on, Francisco Alvarez, and maybe, Pete, this was the moment we've been waiting for. He swings and misses at pitch one on a pitch that was well out of the strike zone. And then he gets a slider that hangs right over the middle of the plate, rips a line drive into the corner, Vogelbach scores, Canna scores, and Alvarez responds to Rosario. That's basically what it was, a two-out, two-run double by Alvarez. His bat is getting better. His defense has been steady. And like I said last time, Pete, He's playing like we can't even argue about it anymore. He started two of three games in this weird Atlanta series. 
I think he started two of three in the Washington series. He started two games in the San Francisco series. He started two of three in the LA series. Like he has now become the majority of the time catcher and he's earning it. He's getting better offensively. And you just see the difference. Tomas Nito gives us no shot at the plate. None. Lay down a bunch, sure, which he did in game one. Great. Laid it down successfully. But Alvarez, and obviously we have to be patient about it. It didn't happen right away. But this was a huge two-run double. Not only changes the complexion of the game, but maybe for him just continues to give him confidence. Yeah, but, dude, the one thing, and I'm so sick and tired of most people, like, I'm not the most patient man in the world. I won't lie. But when you're bringing up a young kid like Francisco Alvarez, who succeeded at every single level, and the one thing about him was he was a slow starter. And we bring him up, and he plays one every three games, and we expect the guy to hit a home run every game and bat 330 or whatever it is. Like, it's just not possible. He doesn't, he's not that type of player, but it comes around. I'm still not saying he's ready yet, but at least he's getting there. He's on his way to being a major league bat. Well, he's already much more of a major league bat than Nito. You know, Buck said early on, what gives us the best chance to win? Well, it's clearly Alvarez because defensively, to our eye, he's been fine, right? To our eyes watching these games, he's been fine defensively. Tyler McGill was asked about, uh, after the game, about Alvarez calling games, and and he was very matter-of-fact, like, he calls the game. If I don't like the pitch, I we do a different pitch. Basically just like, yeah, and that's McGill's attitude. He's got that I don't give a crap attitude, which is good sometimes. Uh, but he, it was very simple. Like, yeah, if he calls a pitch and I don't want it, I shake it off. He calls another pitch. We move on. So for our eyes watching, I think his pitch framing has been fine. You were telling me the stats recently that his pitch framing stats are actually really good. Uh, I don't think he's a hindrance at throwing guys out. A lot of the stolen bases are on the pitchers these days anyway. And offensively, look, he's only hitting, I think it's now 215 after that base hit, whatever it is. He's obviously even at this point and his struggles, 225 to be exact, he's already much better of a threat or much more of a threat than Tomas Nito will ever be. I mean, I get that Buck loves Nito defensively. He's hitting 111. 111. I mean, that's not, you can't play baseball on any kind of consistent basis if you're hitting 111. He also has zero extra base hits he's got five singles he's five for 45 he is a pitcher at the plate so just in terms of on a day-to-day basis who gives the Mets the best chance to win obviously it's Alvarez he's even with his slumping he's a better offensive player than Tomas Nito and it's funny after the game I watched Buck's uh, postgame presser and he's asked about hey can that hit Like, turn it around for Alvarez. And he's like, yeah, I'm hopeful. And then he went on to talk about, well, you know, he's been good defensively. Nito's been good defensively. I'm like, Buck, you don't have to compliment Nito every time you compliment Alvarez. They're not two children, you know? They're not your two kids where, oh, I complimented Alvarez. Now I got it. You know, I I better say something about Tomas Nito. I mean, stop. We all appreciate Tomas Nito's defense. He's just really, 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 really bad offensively. That's it. So, so um, that's interesting that you say how bad he is uh, offensively, good defensively. 
there's going to be an issue when Narvaez, it's not here just yet, but when he's ready to come back, what do you do? I can't think about that. It's so because it's not even close. You know what I mean? Like, I remember when we would talk about the rotation and it's starting to become a little bit closer because it sounds like Carrasco's on his way back, which we'll get to. When you start to get really, really close to a guy coming back, I think it's a worthy discussion. Like, I'll tell you exactly when. When Omar Narvaez goes on a rehab assignment, which God knows when that'll be, we'll have a discussion about it. I, I just think that there's so much that can happen between now and Narvaez getting healthy. Not even worth thinking about. But it's a good problem to have. I mean, honestly, Alvarez performing and deserving to keep an everyday catching job is a great, great situation. Jeff McNeil hits that insurance home run. And then we see Buck do something really interesting. He goes to David Robertson in the eighth inning. And that's not even the interesting part because he's done a lot of that. And I'm, I'm already past the point where I'm not going to go nuts about it anymore. I used to. I used to get so excited and say, oh, he went, he went to the closer in the eighth inning. This is the greatest thing ever. I think I'm just used to it now. It made perfect sense, though. So he goes to David Robertson in the eighth inning against the better brave hitters. So I figured he was doing the same thing that, you know, I love that we've talked about. Well, let's use him. Use your best pitcher against some of the better hitters. And in this case, it was two, three, and four of the brave order. And Robertson comes in, gives up a one-out single to Austin Riley, and boom, boom, he strikes out Dan, uh, Sean Murphy, strikes out Eddie Rosario. I figure that's it. He hasn't pitched in four days. And for some reason, Buck said, bring him out for the ninth, which I was very surprised about with a two-run lead. I figured he was just flipping Robertson and Adovino when he was going to go to Otto. So he keeps Robertson in the game. And after the leadoff double by Ozzy Albies, no big deal. Boom, boom, boom. Back-to-back -back strikeouts of Hilliard and Harris. Gets Trump to pop up. And he gets through it. I was surprised about that. Now, his reason after the game was he was thinking about saving bullets for tomorrow, as in Tuesday night against Detroit. I didn't think using Robertson and Adovino would be wasting bullets. Both guys are available to pitch on back-to-back -back days. But I don't mind it necessarily, even though David Robertson is 105 years old. I just wasn't expecting it. I wasn't expecting that to be a six-out save. Or maybe, Pete, he was saying to himself, I really want this game. I agree with Evan. This game matters a little bit more. We saw him do that with Diaz in the games against Atlanta. It was later last year. It certainly wasn't in May. But I, I guess I like it. I don't know. I, I can't say I hate it. I was more just surprised. I didn't even have, like, an anger or happiness feel to it. I was just surprised he was letting David Robertson go get three more outs. Well, was this the the first game that Adovino would have appeared in since his paternity leave? Yes. And the last time he pitched, it was pretty awful, if I'm correct, right? He had to uh, up. I don't think so. Well, he didn't pitch Friday, so I guess the last time he would have pitched is Thursday, the game that they won. I don't think he was awful in that game. I'll double check. There was a game, I th I thought his last appearance, something was off. Maybe I'm wrong, but I know he had a meltdown verse. I just remember him throwing the ball away. I think, was it the Washington series? Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't that Thursday game I was thinking about because he was already on pat uh, paternity list. So I'm going back to the Wednesday game. Yeah, here it is. So he was, he was mediocre, no doubt. He wasn't terrible by any stretch. But in that game, he pitched the eighth inning and gave up a run. He walked the guy, gave up a hit, struck out two. I mean, he gave up a run. It wasn't, you know, he had a disengagement violation. Is that what you're thinking about? 
Yeah, he something was there. there I feel like a couple start, a couple appearances in a row for him wasn't clean. So maybe Buck just wasn't ready to get him back in the mix. Maybe he wanted to do more work with him before he actually put him in a high leverage situation. Well, well, guess what? He's going to be in a high leverage situation Tuesday because I'd be really surprised if David Robertson or Drew Smith are available. I mean, both guys pitched uh, a decent amount on Monday. So when you look ahead to Tuesday's game, Adam Ottavino is probably going to be asked to get as many outs as he ever does. But look, bottom line was they needed that win. Needed maybe too strong. It was a game I wanted. It was a game that was a little bit more important. You get the split against Atlanta. You get the heck out of City Field avoiding disaster. It was not a good homestand, but you avoid disaster. And now the Mets begin an interesting stretch of games. They are about to embark, and I want to be careful saying this because it didn't work against the Nationals when they lost two out of three. But they are now about to see nothing but bad baseball teams until they take on the Tampa Bay Rays in a little over two weeks. They go to Detroit for three. They host Colorado for three. They go to Cincinnati for three. They go to Washington for four. So that is a 13-game stretch against nothing but bad baseball teams, or at least baseball teams you should handle. I'm going to give you a number right now. I shouldn't do this because I remember last year when they were facing the bad teams, we would look at the stretch and say, ah, they got to win this amount of games. And I'm not going to say 10 and three because while I would love that, I'm not necessarily saying that's what it's got to be. So I'm going to go with uh, nine and four. (laughs) Just a one game difference. Nah, I mean, if you go eight and five in the, are we mad about eight and five against these bad teams or is that not good enough? Here's the problem is eight and five is really not good enough, but the level that they play against bad teams Eight and five is acceptable. Like they drop, <laughs> they they drop these games all the time. I know. Last year was so bad because I think we figured, oh, after the Dodgers series, division's ours. All we got to do is take care of these games, and the division is ours. What what I can't believe, and we're gonna see it in the Detroit series. I have not looked far ahead enough to the Colorado series. I mentioned to you last time that the Mets have faced a lefty starter in every series they've played. Every one of them, okay? They've played how many series? We're now a month into the season. At least one lefty. We saw it Friday with Max Fried and Atlanta. They're about to face two lefties in Detroit. Joey Wentz is going to pitch the Wednesday game. Eduardo Rodriguez is going to pitch the Thursday game. And it's frustrating because the Met options against left-handed pitching is not ideal. Uh, Buck Showalter still feels Tommy Pham needs to face lefties pass look here are some lessons we've learned over the last few days okay brett Beatty has to play every bleeping day okay this discussion and it's not even a discussion it's just what buck did upon calling up Beatty, where he wouldn't face lefties enough he hits a home run off a lefty out of the bullpen you started the guy against max free thank god I think he's earned it. And and you know what? I'm going to be confident here, Pete. He's going to play every day. Because think about the way Buck handles the kids. Calls up Alvarez, doesn't play him right away. Now he's pretty much playing him all the time. Beatty, not going to start him against lefties. Starts him against Freed. I think the momentum will be built. Kind of like how Alvarez now plays two out of every three games. That Beatty's going to face lefties. I guess what he doesn't want to do is give these kids anything. Just doesn't want to hand it to him. 
So instead, it's, okay, go earn it. Well, Alvarez has earned more playing time, I think. And certainly, Brett Beatty's earned the time against lefties. So that brings us back to the DH. It's Escobar. That's it. I don't hear anything else. Right? I'm done with Tommy Pham. I'm not DFAing Tommy Pham, though, if you want to. I'm not opposed to it. Uh, Eduardo Escobar should be the designated hitter on Wednesday and Thursday against the lefty. Period. That's where we're at. And Tim LaCastro's on a rehab assignment. Did you see that, Pete? Well, if he's on a rehab assignment, get Tommy Pham ready with his DFA papers. Because <laughs> how else is LaCastro getting on this team? And they miss LaCastro. Seriously, that speed off the bench, that ability to steal a base at any point, like, don't devalue it. He's more valuable than Tommy Pham is. Like, who are we kidding? Yeah, well, if you listen to Buck, I mean, we may see Beatty go back down. That's 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 impossible. <laughs> I, mean, I, I mean, I agree, but that's just, I just, listen, Buck is beginning, he's beginning to be the worst liar in history. He's only fooling himself. Like, no yeah, one believes nah, he's, he's saying. I, there are certain things I just don't take seriously. Like, I mean, he's he's kind of proven that. And it's whatever. His shtick works and the Mets win mostly. So I'm not I'm not anti-buck, but yeah, he's he's a BSer. That's that's what he is. I, I think with Verlander coming back on Wednesday and Scherzer coming back on Tuesday, I wonder if it gives the Mets maybe the possibility of carrying one less reliever. You know, we've talked about that since the beginning of the season that you know, do you really need 13 pitchers? Can you possibly go with 12? I don't know, with a rotation that appears to finally be healthier than it's been over the last few weeks, obviously with Max, it was the suspension. Do you feel, not first time around, because Verlander's going to have a pitch count, but eventually, if they can get a turnaround in the rotation of keeping an extra position player, because that's how you get LeCastro back on the roster. How else are you getting him back on the roster? I just don't think they're going to DFA fam. Um, they paid him $6 million, $6 million, I think, is his salary. I would just be surprised this early in the season to admit a failure or a mistake, even if it's not a grave mistake. But Castro's rehabbing, so he's he's on his way. And, and quite frankly, if Escobar DHs against lefties, which he should, where's the value in Tommy Pham? I mean, I don't see it. Oh, because he can pinch hit for Daniel Vogelback? Great. Uh, that's fantastic. Guy's not a hit in a month. Well, listen. I mean, the the, the problem is though, you're we still have a, a pitching staff that really can't consistently get in deep innings. So until they could show that they get to at least the the seventh, like they have to at least finish six innings consistently. And I know that's ridiculous that, that we've been talking like that. Like, oh, that's the big that's the that's the benchmark we need to see. But that's reality right now. There's no way that you can get rid of a bullpen arm if you're getting four and a half, five innings of, of, of pitchers. No, you're right. You're, you're a thousand percent. Right. They can't do it yet. It's more the hope of, wow, a healthy rotation of guys, especially Verlander and Scherzer can be the innings eaters. We thought they'd be that it could lead to that. But think about it this way. And it's, it's kind of crazy. We're a month into this baseball season, right? We're one month in Justin Verlander is about to make his first start as a Met. Max Scherzer made four of them and threw 19 innings. So the New York Mets from the two aces who are making $88 million combined, whatever the figure is, got 19 innings in the first month of the year from Verlander and Scherzer. And the positive way to look at it is that despite only getting those innings, they're 16 and 13. 
which was not a bad beginning of the season. You know, I'm not 16 and 13 is not amazing, but they've gotten literally nothing from Verlander and Scherzer. Quintana hasn't pitched. Carrasco has been a disaster. I mean, think about what the rotation was supposed to be, what they've gotten from it. The fact that 16 and 13 is almost a miracle. Oh, and by the way, our, the best closer in baseball has been hurt all season long and won't come back. I mean, you have, I, I hate to do this, but like you look at what this roster has done. It's over exceeded to start the season. It, re- it really has. Like the expectations are always high with the Mets now with Cohen, but they've, they've overachieved with how, what they started with. Well, especially with what the rotation has looked like. Now the rotation is starting to get healthier. We mentioned Scherzer's back from his suspension had to be pushed back a day because of the rain. Now, He's going to return on Tuesday in Detroit, tonight in Detroit, if you're listening on Tuesday. Verlander the following day, there'll be a restrictive pitch count on him. Then they bumped up Lucchese a day because they want to give Kodai Senga as much time between starts as humanly possible. So we know that over the next four days, you're looking at Scherzer, Verlander, Lucchese, and then Kodai Senga. And then naturally, it would come back to Tyler McGill who I thought was at least pretty effective in this game against Atlanta. And then it leads to Carlos Carrasco, who, according to Buck Showalter, is on his way back. Here's how I would view the Carrasco situation, because right now this rotation feels sort of set with Scherzer, Verlander, Senga, McGill, Lucchese. It's like nice, neat, and organized. There's your rotation. David Peterson's been returned to AAA. If you want to add Carrasco, fine. I don't think I'm bumping anybody, though. I think I would treat Carrasco as the sixth man and, and kind of take it by year, see how he pitches, see how McGill and Lucchese pitch, see if Verlander and Scherzer and Senga remain healthy. But clearly with the way they feel about Senga and giving him extra rest and the fact that Verlander and Scherzer are old men, I, I, we talked about this before the year started, certainly with some different names, I got no issue adding Carrasco, but it's not going to be at the at the cost of one of the other guys at this point. I think it would be more just adding a sixth man because I don't even know what to expect from Carrasco. He was so bad prior to his injury. So that's how I would treat Carrasco if he really is on his way back, like Buck said in the next couple of weeks. Is there any possibility if Carrasco just can't give you anything spectacular that he goes to the bullpen? I don't know. I don't think they would do that to him. I don't know how useful he can be out of the bullpen. I think if Carrasco ever ends up in the bullpen, that's going to be more of a September thing. I I doubt they would do it this early, but there's a use for Carlos Carrasco because, again, the Mets are always going to want to have that sixth starter at the ready. We could go through every guy in the rotation outside of, like, Lucchese and Miguel, the young guys, and explain why they could use extra days here and there. Mets are clearly aggressive with that, with Kodai Sango. So it's not a bad thing that Carrasco's coming back necessarily. I just, I wouldn't start the debate of, ooh, who should he replace? He shouldn't replace anybody. (laughs) I mean, at this point, like, McGill and Lucchese deserve to remain in the rotation. Now, can that change two starts from now? Of course it can. Absolutely. I think both those guys have to treat every five days like they're pitching and remain, you know, remain major leaguers. They ain't guaranteed anything. Do you think uh, that Francisco Alvarez will catch Kodai Senga this year? 
<laughs> That's the million dollar question. <laughs> hey, is Kodai Senga ever going to pitch? And then when he does, will Francisco Alvarez catch him? Um, I think they may stay away from that for a while just because they're clearly handling Senga with care. They're clearly trying to be very careful with him. One other thing, I, I, I noticed that Daniel Murphy is off to a great start with the Long Island Ducks, uh, legitimately. Hit a home run. I think he's like five for 13, something of that nature. And so I saw it. I was checking the box scores. I haven't watched any highlights, but I was just checking it out. I was impressed by the fact he's playing second base. He's not even DHing. Like he's going out there and playing second base. He, I'm dead serious about this, and I'm not going to tell you, oh, they should sign him and put him in the major leagues. I'm not suggesting that. But what I am suggesting is they should sign him only because I would rather see that guy at AAA and double A. If he really wants to make a baseball comeback, and we know what kind of hitter he can be, and challenge him against guys that are closer to the major leagues and not the independent league. Because the problem is, and this has nothing to do with like a love affair for Daniel Murphy. It's more, I don't think we can judge how he is by hitting up on independent league pitching. I just don't, like, I'm not going to sit here every Rico and make a big deal out of it. I'm mentioning it now because of this, I, this thought of, Bring him in. Just send him to AAA because when you're facing AAA pitching, you are one step away from the major leagues. You really get an idea if a guy still has it. If I had to guess, I don't think Daniel Murphy has anything left. If I'm being honest, I don't think he does, but I've noticed that he's off to a good start in Long Island. And if I'm the Mets, especially because of my history with him and the fact that could they use a left-handed DH? Sure. Daniel Vogelback goes down with an injury or Daniel Vogelback continues to take three, one fastballs right down the middle. It's not the craziest thing in the world. So I'd give him a contract. I'd bring him to AAA and just keep an eye on him and see if he really has anything left. Well, you, you make it sound like he's, I don't want to say, listen, he's hurt. He was hurt, which is part of the reason why he killed his career. He, he retired, but you make it sound like he's not better than a lot of these guys who are defensive replacements. Like he's better bat than Guillaume. You know what I mean? Like I'm not trying to. Well, yeah, but Guillaume is a great glove. Like Guillaume isn't there for his bat. He's there for his glove. And I'll challenge you on this. Daniel Murphy last played baseball in 2020. And when he played in 2020, he looked done. Now you want to tell me it was health related. It's now been three years. He's 38 years old. Like, I don't know what he is. I can't even assume he's that much better of a major league offensive player than Luis Guillerme. I don't know the answer. It's been three years. I'm saying, though, if you put him in AAA, maybe we have a better idea. You know, he goes down to AAA and hits 360. We get, I'd say, sure, why not? Bring him up. But if he goes down there and it's 225, we're not going to waste our time. But we've seen there is history of these older guys finding one or two seasons left at the end of the tank. Like, look at Matt Carpenter. He looked done. And Yankees last year, he found his swing, and he's doing okay in San Diego right I, now. I, what all I'm saying is, is he's probably done. The only way to find <laughs> out is to have triple A. Like, we're not learning anything for us. I mean, obviously, for Daniel and for the Long Island Ducks, it's great. Good for him being down there. But for you and I, and for any Met fan who wants him to help the team, not just some kind of nostalgic kick, I can't tell you he has anything left based on what he's doing with the Ducks. But if you're really interested and you're the New York Mets, you sign him to a minor league contract, you stick him with one of your minor league affiliates, specifically AAA or AA, and you find out what he has. And you, you kind of challenge him that way.
That's all I'm saying. Uh, one quick email, and we'll obviously do another Rico after the Detroit series coming up, but I thought this was fun. From Andrew Wass. First of all, put in the books. Robertson just closed out the Braves with a six-inning save, which I don't agree with, but I'll take the W. Now we don't have Robertson tomorrow. I really don't understand that. Buck has made a few decisions lately. I could more than nitpick. Anyway, interesting stuff. Uh, I have an old baseball question for you that's very Rico appropriate. If you could pick one player from any era to field an entire team with, who would it be? And if you pick a guy and Hoff picks a guy, whose team do you think would win? I don't know why I find this fascinating. For me, it'd be Ricky Henderson. Imagine a team of eight Rickies out there running the bases and playing the field. That'd be wild to do the same thing, but just pick someone from uh, someone who was a Met. Um, well, I guess it could still be Ricky, but I would want a more established Met. I'd go David Wright. Good enough arm. He could probably get some outs pitching fast enough to play the outfield. Could probably play all the infield positions decently, except maybe shortstop. Anyway, what do you think? <laughs> so the guy's question is, one guy, and the entire team is nine of those guys. Oh, um, well, there goes every single left-hander. You can't do a left-hander at shortstop. I tell you the guy right now. Who? Jeff McNeil. Mm. I, t- I tell you why. Because, hey, Jeff McNeil could pretty much play everywhere. He could play second. He could play first. He could play third. He could play the outfield. Can he play short? Fine. He also would cause the opposing pitcher's pitch count to explode because there'd be at least three or four at-bats in which he gives you like a nine-pitch at-bat, which is fouling pitches off. Nimmo would be good, too. Like, offensively, Nimmo would be a great choice, but I don't trust him defensively at every position. So I'd go with nine Jeff McNeils. Your thoughts? It's nice, but it's not enough power at times. Like, he's a good hitter. But is he easy to single people to death? I, yes. I don't know. Going up against Ricky Henderson, he'll he'll get those singles and make them out. That's true. He's so fast. Like doubles and triples. <laughs> um. So, but it could be any error, though, right? Yeah. Hey, you want to okay. go with Willie Mays? No, I'm not gonna go Willie. I'm not gonna go Willie. Um. This is tough. For some reason, like shortstop is in my head. Let me think of the shortstop that I would be. Jose no. Reyes. No, it's just not. It's not good. At it. He's he, not enough talent there. I like the David Wright aspect of it, but how about Jacob Degrom? He could pitch and play shortstop, and well, not a bad thinking, hitter. I was thinking Shohei Otani, but that's just no. Does that you, you got to pick a Met? Andrew oh. wants us to pick Mets, not Shohei Otani. He's on. gonna be a Met. Did you see the jersey? Wait till next year. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. If it's if it's gonna be a Met, then it has to be Howard Johnson. Hojo. Oh yeah. my god! All right, I my team will job. win. My team will win easily. By the way, one unrelated Met thing: Luisa Rise is hitting four thirty-eight. I just want to point that out because I know it felt like he was only getting hits against us when the Mets were playing the Marlins earlier this season. He has a five hundred on base percentage, and he's leading Major League Baseball with a ridiculous four thirty-eight batting average. Insane, but he only has seven extra base hits, so he'll single you to death, like you said about Jeff McNeil. Nah, Rise is <laughs> tremendous. Tremendous, tremendous. Uh, we got another Rico after the Detroit series. I doubt we'll do an instant reaction to any of these two games. Maybe we will, though, because Verlander's making his debut. And obviously, Scherzer's making his return. But the Mets head to Detroit, and they head to this stretch of games against some bad teams. Hopefully, they take care of business. Email the pod anytime, the B at gmail.com, the B at gmail.com. We appreciate you listening and downloading Rico Bronya. 
We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Rico Bronya podcast. It's amazing, isn't it? Make sure you download it now to keep it on you at all times.